where we're at today. And uh, we understand, or we should have, as we've been coming through the book of Romans, and I've told you this, uh, and we've kept it before, you got to have this note in your Bible, uh, the book of Romans breaks down into four sections. And we have been studying it by sections, is what we've been doing, and we're in the prophetic section. And you should know now, and have your notes in there, that the prophetic section uh, has to do with God, uh, through Paul, writing to us, the church. And that's really what the whole book of Romans is about. The book of Romans is a book that, when Paul writes it, he's giving you and me, as New Testament Christians, the complete context, the complete concept of, of what the church's job is and how it should view everything, the aspect of ministry. And uh, in the prophetic section, that'll be chapters 9, 10, and 11, he goes in and takes three chapters to show you and me uh, God's uh, viewpoint of the nation of Israel. Now, we have learned a lot about that in our basic Bible classes, haven't, don't, haven't we? And we know now that the, in the Bible, your Bible is breaking, broken down basically in two sections. And there's two basic main components of your Bible. One is the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and the body of Christ or the church in the New Testament. So, based on what we've already learned from our Bible basics classes, and you now begin to see, and what I'm teaching you on Sunday morning, you now begin to see how important it is for you and I to have an understanding of the nation of Israel. These three chapters uh, are usually always taught completely out of context. And of course, uh, putting the Bible in a context, or Romans in a context, and breaking it down chapter by chapter, uh, we remember that we, we're in Romans chapter, chapter 9. And I told you that Romans chapter 9, here's what he's doing. And this will help you understand better what we're going to talk about today. Romans chapter 9, basically, God begins to show how the importance of the nation of Israel to him. In that chapter, he begins to show what we studied yesterday, the formulation, the calling out. Uh, all of those areas that we talked about yesterday, you're going to see now, and this is what I told you yesterday, how we were going to start to see how that you, you learned something on Sunday, and now you put it in a place uh, with what you've been learning on how to make that Bible work for you. And in chapter 9, we see that he begins to talk about how important Israel is to God. He begins to talk about uh, uh, how God has protected Israel and brought them to where he wants them to be. And then he talks about the fact, like we saw yesterday, that the nation of Israel rejected God. They threw out everything that God gave them. And we saw that yesterday you know, on the demise of the nation of Israel and how it all came to down, crashing down. And Romans chapter 9 basically gives us the perspective historically of how God views the nation of Israel, how God brought them uh, into this world, and then how they rejected him, and why they rejected him is even more important, and, and then they, they self-destruct, so to speak. Romans chapter 10 is a great chapter because it shows that once the nation of Israel does self-destruct, we saw this also yesterday, God then turns his attention to the nation, uh, to, to the Gentiles. And this is where he calls out the church. This is why, this is why the greatest chapters on winning somebody to Christ will be Romans chapter 10. And we use that all the time. Then in chapter 11, we see that, that the whole thing come full circle. Where chapter 9 shows you that God called them out, he had a purpose for them, and then they rejected him, so he goes to the Gentiles. Romans chapter 11 makes sure that we as Gentiles don't get caught up in the aspect 
that we think God is all finished with the nation of Israel. Remember now from yesterday, the nation of Israel and the church are the two main components. There will never be a time when God was finished with either one of them. So Romans chapter 11 then focuses on the great restoration of the nation of Israel. God bringing them back and putting it all, uh, putting them back in their proper place. And that's what we uh, have looked at so far. And I want you to notice this too. Uh, my suggestion to you on putting your notes in your Bible in Romans chapter 9. Uh, you notice how I'm breaking it down in small sections of verses. Uh, the first message we had was verses 1 through 5, and I basically showed you the eight things that Israel had that could have kept them straight, but they didn't. Uh, the next message was chap uh, uh, verses 6 through 8, and that was the one we talked about last week where it says that, that uh, the Word of God did have an effect on them, and not all Israel is of Israel, and I showed you how that all played out. What I would do with you, if I were you, is I would, I would, uh, I would put up, first of all, I would put a little header above each chapter explaining what that chapter is. Then I would take each section as I've explained it in the book of Romans, and uh, I would break down and explain very briefly each section so you understand it. And then I would keep a running uh, record uh, in your Bible of each set of those verses. Romans is a book. All buy books of the Bible this way, but for me personally, I probably had Romans, <laughs> I probably forgot Romans six or seven times. Romans is one of those books where you think you have it, and then you find out you don't. And it takes a while to get used to it. But I want to tell you, the thing that has saved me time and time again when it comes to not only Romans, but any book of the Bible, it's your note system that you put in your Bible. That's why we have back here those wide margin Bibles. And the, I know you can go out and buy a study Bible and you can spend a lot of money and get somebody else's notes, which really don't mean anything most of the time. But I've told you over the years that the best study Bible you ever have is your own. And you need to have a running account in time of every book of the Bible and, and in time every chapter and in time every verse of the Bible. But right now, like when we're in Romans, you want to start doing it. I found out that if you do it as you go and as we break things down, you, you get it done where one day you're going to wake up and you say, wow, I need to do that. But then you're going to have to go back. And, and if you do it a little bit at a time, it, it takes care of itself. And I encourage you to do that. And uh, you want to also then do the same thing with today's passage. Now, last week, as I said, we looked at verses 6, 7, and 8. And we talked about under the context of blindness in part has happened to Israel. And we looked at the idea that he's getting across that that, uh, that uh, the Word of God did have some effect on the nation of Israel. Even though the nation as a whole rejected the Messiah and rejected Christ, there were some Jews who got saved. There were some Jews who found the Messiah, and uh, that's the reference that he's talking about, and we saw that last week. And then I guess I gave you one of the greatest keys uh, that you'll ever get to your Bible of unlocking Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, with the stories in those, in those Gospels. And I showed you that every story in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, every event, and I gave you a number of examples. We even talked about some on Thursday night again. But I showed you that every one of those represent uh, a picture of Israel's spiritual condition at the time of the first coming of Christ. And boy, if you learn that, uh, it'll, you'll never read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John again the same way. Now today we're going to look at another set of verses and again we're going to set the stage uh, for uh, looking how Israel got messed up 
in, in what they did and then how God uh, is getting ready to restore them as we come through these passages. And as I said yesterday now, you're going to see, and this is very important to see the correlation between what I'm teaching you in the basic Bible classes uh, to what, we, what we're studying on Sunday. I want you to see how you use this material. All right, Romans chapter 9, let's pick it up in our next set of verses, and this will be 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13. Here we go. For this is the word of promise, at this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, uh, even by our father Isaac. Now, Rebekah, I hope this is not a prophecy. Oh, okay. All right. I'm just saying, you know, God moves in mysterious ways. All right. All right. We cannot stand any more pregnancies in this church for a while. All right. Well, it says right here, Rebecca also conceived. What do you want me to do with that? Now, every verse has a historical application and a doctrinal application. It's the inspirational application I'm worried about here. Just move on. Okay. Just move on. All right. All right. For the children, being not yet born neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now this passage, again, when you read it, man, it, it kind of looks confusing. I mean, we got a passage here that basically at the end of the verse it says God loves one guy and hates another guy. I thought God was love. I thought we were all the children of God. And, uh, you know, uh, when you read down through here, um, it says, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, I learned a long time ago, and when the old boys were teaching me the Bible, the absolute importance of being exact when it comes with the Word of God. And uh, I've tried to uh, do this in our Bible basic class. I've tried to do it when I preach on Sunday and certainly on Thursday night Bible study. And uh, I told you that, that the real key to doing that is getting the right events and the right people in the right sequence in the course of the Bible. John chapter 5, verse 39, we're told to search the Scriptures. And that is how you stay exact with the Word of God. I think one of the classic mistakes within the Bible that people make is that people read things and they make assumptions. Now, I would like to tell you, years ago when I was in the military, my drill sergeant had a great definition for the word assume. How many have ever heard that definition? All right. Rebecca, since you raised your hand, would you stand up and tell us what it is? No, I don't think she's going to. I'd love to tell you what it is, but I can't tell you what it is. But it's a great definition. Just kind of pray over it and maybe the Holy Spirit of God will give it to you. But anyway, you don't read the Bible and then just make an assumption of because of what I'm reading, because this sounds logical, this must be what it means. you got to search the Scriptures. And the Bible tells you itself, back there in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, that the Bible is of no private interpretation. I don't have a right to read the Bible and, and make my, my own mind what this means. Now, many people do that. But I don't have a right, nor do you have a right, nor really does anybody have a right, because the Bible, the Bible uh, defines itself. And I don't have to read something and then make a private interpretation on it of what it means. What I have to do is search the Scriptures. And when you search the Scriptures, you'll find the Bible uh, 
it defines itself as it's going to do for us this morning when we look at this passage here and certainly in the area of Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. You can't come to the Bible with your mind. You have to come to the Bible and get God's mind. And that's, of course, what we try to do. Now, if you just read the passage as you look at it, uh, you know, it, it, it looks like basically that God says, I, like, I, I love this guy, but I hate this guy. And then you read on in the chapter, and it looks like God may have picked this guy and rejected this guy. A couple of months ago, well, it was when we were in Romans chapter 8. I took about three weeks and I taught you about the damnable heresy called Calvinism. Calvinism is a heresy that, as far as I'm concerned, is concocted in hell to uh, get a lot of people uh, lost and send them to hell. And I told you that Calvinism was the basic teaching, and you don't have to understand or even remember, Calvinism was the basic teaching. It started with John Calvin, who's one of the reformers. Calvinism is sometimes called predestination. And it simply means that way back there in Genesis 1-1 someplace, God looked down through eternity, and God saw some of you and said, I really love that person, so I'm going to take them to heaven. And then looked at other people and said, well, I really hate you, so I'm going to send you to hell. And basically the Calvinist position is, you don't have any choice in it. And uh, if you ever go to a Calvinist church, I think they're the most dishonest people in all the world. I mean, they sing the same songs out of there that, that we sing, you know, and uh, a Calvinist doesn't believe that. A Calvinist believes that some of you were chosen and some of you were not chosen. And some of you, you could, you're going to go to heaven whether you want to or not, and some of you are going to go to hell and there's nothing you can do about it. And they base a lot of it not only on what I gave you last time, but this verse right here. Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And you know what? If I was a Calvinist, I'd be an honest Calvinist. I'd rewrite the hymn book. I wouldn't sing, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. I'd sing, Jesus loves me, sorry about you. Because you're not one of the chosen few. See, that's what I'd sing. I'd be honest about it. And I, I've never understood their position, because it's a goofy position. But then most Calvinists are goofy. I've never met a Calvinist in my life who, who really understood the Bible. Because if he did understand the Bible, you know what? Here it comes. He wouldn't be a Calvinist. See? Now, it's important to have the right definition. And what a Calvinist does is he reads down here, and he says, like in verse 11, God according to election. Ah, that's a big word with Calvinists. Calvinists love the word elect and love the word election. And of course, I, I've always looked at it I've always looked at it pretty basically. I'm not very much of a theological guy. If a Calvin says that, uh, uh, you know, that, that you've got to be elect or you've got to be uh, election, I just always go back to the Bible and search the Scriptures. And you're going to find that you've got to get the right definition. The word elect or the word election is a word that is never used for the church. Never. One time Paul makes a reference in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, but in that passage, he's not talking about the election of an individual. He's talking about the election of the concept of the church. My point is this. When you start to come through the Bible, and again, I would tell you to search the Scripture, you'll find that if you want the definitive passage on the word elect and the word election, it's going to be Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, and Isaiah chapter 45, verse 4. 
Now, you don't have to turn to those this morning, but if you wouldn't turn to them, you know what you'd find? You would find very clearly that he tells you that Israel is God's elect, not the church. And then I'll add another little bombshell to it that'll, that'll help you put it all together. The word elect or the word election, never in your Bible is it ever used toward any individual, not even a Jew. The word election or the word elect will always be dealing toward a nation. Now, the word elect simply means special. It means set apart. It means chosen. If you were in our Bible basic class and you got those charts down yesterday and we showed how we, we the first week, first month, we laid down the basic aspects so you got a context. Yesterday we went a little bit deeper and we got that stuff all laid out. You now know how God formulated, called out, and separated the nation of Israel from the rest of the world. Do you not? Okay, that's election. That's elect. Israel was God's elect from the fact that, uh, that, he, uh, that he separated them out, made them special, gave them things that he gave no other nation. It's never individuals. It's always a nation. And yes, you could use the word election in reference to the church. Paul did the one time. He didn't dwell on it. But Paul, uh, in a sense of the body, not an individual. And then along with Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1 and 45, 4, you want to add Isaiah 65, 9. Isaiah 65, 22. Matthew chapter 24, verse 24. And Matthew chapter 24, 31. And of course, uh, you, will, you will see when you look those verses up that all of these verses teach very clearly to anybody searching the scriptures that the word elect or the word election is always dealing with the nation of Israel, but never in any sense, anywhere in your Bible, will it ever deal with an individual. And of course, the reason why a Calvinist will get into Romans chapter 9 and try to put Romans chapter 9 into the church as far as election is because a Calvinist couldn't explain to you the context of the book of Romans if you put a gun to his head. A Calvinist couldn't sit down and lay out Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 if somebody uh, was threatened to, to kill him. He can't do it because he doesn't understand his Bible. And if you don't have a context of the Bible, then you're never going to figure out anything in the Bible, and you certainly won't figure out election or the word elect. You have to search the Scriptures. Okay, with that little introduction now, and we've got a problem here. We're going to find out what he means when he says, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. And what you're about to get today is a little deeper Bible study, but I'll tell you what, it is one of the greatest studies that you'll ever take in the Scriptures, and I'll try to break it down as easy as I can for you. But let's look at verse 9. Let's tend to take this thing one step at a time. For this, and I'm going to show you now how that we, how that we, we learn some things, not only from our basic Bible classes, but from our Thursday night and also from our, our, our Sunday morning. Look at verse 9. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. Oh, Sarah. These are biblical prophecies, Sarah. I don't know what to tell you. I, maybe I better go out and get a reversed revision and see if they change the names. In the modern Bible, it's probably Tom will have a son, knowing the way things are going in the world today. Sarah and Rebecca. Ooh. Everybody, for the next couple of months, keep your eye on Sarah and Rebecca. <laughs> now, what's he doing here? He's setting up the stage to show you and I the importance 
of the nation of Israel in God's plan. Then he's showing us, he's going to show us how they got off track. But he's going to show us in spite of that because the nation of Israel was God's elect. Because the nation of Israel got the election of God. That they as a nation, not an individual, as a nation were special, set apart. Our word for it in the church age is sanctified. They were set apart. They were special that they were not to be part of the world. Now look at verse 9 again. And, and the word of promise to Sarah. Now here we go. Remember last week I told you when we were coming through all the different things in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I gave you eight or nine of them. And I told you how that all the stories of the events in the Bible all picture some kind of the nation of Israel in their spiritual condition. I told you about Elizabeth. Elizabeth was the mother of John the Baptist. And I told you when we looked at Elizabeth that there were seven women in the Old Testament who, when you read their stories and when you find them in the Bible, they can't have children. They're barren. And I did a little study and not any of those women are found, their names are found in our church. Meaning we're going to keep on having babies. So anyway, Elizabeth was the last one. She was the last one. And of course, she's barren, has no child, and then she has a child, and that child is a type of Christ, John the Baptist. Every one of those seven women, when you read their story in the Bible, they start out not able to have children. They're barren, fruitful, no fruit. They represent and picture the barrenness of the nation of Israel and Israel's inability to produce fruit. And then every one of them, through a miraculous event, through a miracle event, every one of them do at some point conceive, have a child, it's a man-child, and then that man-child is one of the great types of Christ in the Bible. All right? Remember I told you that? Elizabeth was the last one. Do you know who the first one is? Right here, Sarah. Sarah is the first one. See? Sarah, and when it says the word of promise to Sarah, Sarah is one of the seven. In fact, she's the first one. She's found in Genesis chapter 16, verse 1, where it says, Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, bear him no children. Verse 9 says, the word of promise. Now the word of promise given to Sarah, the promise to Sarah was that the line of Christ is going to come through you. Remember yesterday when I talked about Abraham being the beginning of the nation of Israel? The Jews to this day call him Father Abraham. How many have been to camp, sung a goofy little song? Father Abraham, have many sons. Many sons have Father Abraham, and I am one of them. Sorry about you. but let, I'm a Calvinist. But let's just praise. The, remember that song? Now that is the stupidest song in the world. There's only one song dumber than that, and it's Kumbaya. I mean, Kumbaya is the dumbest song in the world. Kumbaya, my Lord, Kumbaya. My favorite song is called Pine Tree. Pine tree, pine tree, pine tree, pine tree. Oh, pine tree, pine tree. 
Pine tree, pine tree. Second verse, pine tree. <laughs> it don't mean anything. <laughs> pine tree. <laughs> I mean, I got, sorry has to say something. Kumbaya, manor, kumbaya. What is that, karate? Kumbaya! Now, the word of promise, the word of promise was the promise to Abraham, Father Abraham, the beginning of the Jews. From Abraham comes Isaac. From Isaac comes Jacob. From Jacob comes the 12 tribes. From the 12 tribes, they come from those 12 sons who become the 12 tribes. They go down into Egypt, and then they come out of Egypt strong. I gave you that yesterday. See? So the promise to Sarah was the promise that the line of Christ is going to come through you, through Abraham. And that's why the Bible says that Abraham is the father of the Jews. Over there in Luke chapter 16, the rich man in hell and Lazarus. Father Abraham! See? Now there's a whole study on Abraham when he dies, how the whole thing changes. You realize that up to this point before Abraham dies, that when they die, they just died. And once Abraham dies, a new phrase comes into your Bible. You probably never caught it. From that point on, every time somebody dies, they say they were gathered to his people. And that changes with the death of Abraham. Why? He's a head of the Jews. Head of the Jews. Sarah is one of the seven barren women. And the promise to her is that the, the seed line of Christ will come uh, through Israel, from Abraham, through her. Now this material is not about the Gentile church, any way, shape, or form. It's about Israel. And when you see how the, the, the seven barren women, how when you have that piece of information in your hand, and then you read Romans chapter 9 about Sarah, how it all just sets the context for you, how in the world could you get the church out of here if you knew that the seven barren women through the Old Testament always represent the nation of Israel? You couldn't unless you didn't know anything about your Bible. Now look at verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah ah, also had conceived by one, even by our father, well, Isaac wasn't my father, my father is named Frank Holsworth Alexander. But whoever wrote this or is talking about this is talking about Isaac being their father. Talking about the nation of Israel. The Jews. Now we have a reference to Rebekah, the wife of Jacob. From, and you know we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that comes on down through the line of Christ. But in Genesis chapter 25 verses 20 through 21, she's one of the seven barren women. She's the second one. Now, I've given you three of them, so I'm just going to go ahead and give you all seven of them here so you can put them in your Bible. You need to run these and cross-reference these to each one. You have Sarah in Genesis chapter 16, 1. You have Rebecca, Genesis chapter 25. You have Rachel, chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 29. You have Hannah in 1 Samuel 1. You have the Shumanite woman in 1 Kings chapter 4. And then you have uh, uh, Manoah in Judges chapter 13. And then our last one is Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1. Seven barren women. And when you find the Holy Spirit of God making reference to them in a passage of Scripture, it's telling you, search the Scriptures. It's telling you. It's setting the context for you. Some Calvinist comes up and says, well, there's predestination right there. You're an idiot. 
That has nothing to do with any individual or anything in the body of Christ. Search the scriptures. Now, Rebecca is vital because we got a problem here. And it's Jacob, have I loved? And Esau, have I hated? Now, we've got to reconcile this. And we've got to get this thing where it, be, and this is really the key to Romans chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. And you can add this to your repertoire material, uh, what we talked about yesterday. Now, Rebecca has twins. Oh, Rebecca, what a prophecy that is. <laughs> Rebecca has twins. She has Esau and Jacob. I guess Esau and Jacob are two of the greatest characters to study in the Bible. They certainly will solve our problem here. And when we put it in the right context. Because the two guys that we're reading about in Romans chapter 9, where he says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, are the same two guys. But now that we have a context, now that we know that the word election or elect never deals with individuals, we're going to get the verse here that puts it all in perspective for us, found in Genesis chapter 25. And this is what I mean when I say, search the scriptures. Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, going back and talking about the birth of Isaac and Jacob. And this is a great study. Verse 22, chapter 25 of the book of Genesis. And the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. Basically what she's saying this, look, I'm having some real turmoil here. Why is this? And she goes before the Lord. And what the Lord says now is not him just giving her his opinion on, on her pregnancy. He's making a prophecy. And you need to see this. This is the key to Romans chapter 9. It's a key to a lot of things. And you couldn't, find, you couldn't find a Calvinist that could find this verse with a laser beam and a flashlight. Because he doesn't search the scriptures. Now look at verse 22. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Here it comes, two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. You know what you got there? You got a prophecy about two nations. Jacob and Esau represent two nations. And that's why when you know the word elect doesn't ever deal with individuals, that's why when you see this and read this for what you have here, and that's why when you put it into the context, it isn't anything remotely that God picked Jacob over Esau, the individual, or loved one and not the other, the Bible now has told you that we're talking about two nations. And the prophecy in Genesis chapter 25 is that those two nations are not going to get along. And then he gives another prophecy which goes completely outside the realm of Jewish culture. He says that the younger, or the elder, excuse me, shall serve the younger. Now, by cultural standard of the day, the older brother was the one who ruled. It's the elder brother who got most of the inheritance. It's the elder brother that when the father passed off the scene, that he carried the family through. That was standard SOP in, in Jewish everyday culture. But here we find that that process which is standardized is now reversed. 
where the, where the younger should serve the elder, now the elder is going to serve the younger. And of course, this is what we have here, and it's a very great study, and it puts all together. Jacob for, represents for us the nation of Israel. You need to know that. In fact, there's a point of time in the Bible where God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. That's a very important study in the Bible, but we don't have time to get into it this morning. But you're going to find in Genesis chapter 32, verse 28, that God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. And then he uses those words interchangeably wherever he's talking about the nation of Israel down through the Old Testament. And when you read that and you study that and you see that, you find out that Jacob represents for us the nation of Israel. Now, Esau, Esau, Esau represents the Edomites or the nation of Edom. And we know the story of Esau and, and Jacob. We know that by being the oldest, Esau had the birthright and the blessing. Now let me explain that concept. Because in your Bible, and you need to put this in someplace back there in Genesis where it talks about the birthright and the blessing. It'll help you keep it from getting confused. Let's talk about what the birthright is for a moment. The birthright is simply what it sounds. The right by birth. And there were certain things that were the right by birth to be the oldest one in the family. And here's what you got. One, you were entitled to a double portion of the father's inheritance. Everybody else got one, you got two. Everybody else got one scoop of ice cream, you got two. The second thing, he's entitled to the Abrahamic blessing out of Genesis chapter 12. And that Abrahamic blessing is a blessing that goes down through the history concerning the nation. In other words, you are the head man in the family. The third thing is he was entitled to be in the line of Christ. The fourth thing, as head of the family, he's entitled to the gift of prophecy. Now, the blessing is different than the birthright, but they're connected. And this is where people get confused sometimes. Where the blessing is connected to the birthright, it's not the same as the birthright. The blessing is the blessing of God in their lives, down through their life and their families, going hand in hand with the blessings of God as God's firstborn of the family, and as he has the, all the rights by birth, he has the blessings of God. Now, the only way, the only way that somebody could forfeit any of that was by sin. That's the only way they could get out from under that. The only way they could get out from under that was to forfeit that by sin. And here the firstborn Esau and the secondborn Jacob. But what happens is, and you know the story, Esau, the Bible says, despised his birthright. Esau is a picture of an unsaved man. Esau is a picture of an unsaved man who hates the things of God. Esau is a picture of an unsaved man who despises the things of God. To him, the Bible says, he's a, he's, a, he's a man of the field. He's a hairy man. So in the world today, you know, we talk about you're not a real man unless you have hair in your chest, you see. The field in the Bible is a type of the world. So he's a man of the field. He's a man of the world. He's a picture of an unsaved man. And he cares nothing about the birthright. I've always thought it was an, an incredible insight into unsaved human nature. And sometimes God's people, when they get into the same mess, because God's people can be pretty, 
worldly too. But, uh, but you know what? He's out hunting all day long, and he doesn't get anything. And he comes in, and Jacob is making a good pot of chili. And uh, it was, you know, it, it, it must have, the aroma must have went on down the trail. And oh boy, old Jake out, or old Esau out there, he sniffs that and he comes in and, and, and he comes over there and he says, man, he says, can I have, I need some of this chili. And he says, and Jacob, you know, being the Jew, I mean, he ain't going to give anything away. I mean, that's the way they are. I mean, uh, I remember back in, how remember, how remember ever saw the movie Jaws? Remember that movie? I saw that movie. That was about back in the 1974 five. I, I have not went in the water since Jaws. I don't even like, I use a shower. I won't even get in the bathtub. I read too many stories about you people flushing your little pet crocodiles down the t- toilet. They didn't live it in the sewer system. And I'm in the bathtub, you know, all soaked up, and that sucker sticks his head up through. Uh-uh, not me, man. I'll shower. That way I can jump out. But the, the movie Jaws was a great movie. And it was about this great white shark. You know, they come out with a new movie, a sequel to that. I mean, I know they have sequels, but uh, I mean, the uh, end of all end sequels, it's called Jews. It's about loan sharks. <laughs> You'll get that this afternoon sometime. It'll just come out and hit you like a ton of bricks. Jacob doesn't give anything away. He says, what do you give me for this? Now, I love this. Here's Esau. He's got the birthright and the blessing. He has everything by entitlement of the firstborn to have everything that a man could ever have in the Old Testament that God would want him to have. And you know what he says? He says, what good is this birthright to me? And then he says this, I'm at a point to die. He missed one meal. He wasn't out hunting for weeks without food. He missed one meal. And when he comes in, he's so hungry, picture your flesh, and he wants to satisfy that hunger, picture of our flesh, that he looks at the bowl of chili. And he looks at the blessings of God that God had for him, and he makes the conscious decision. What good is this birthright to me? I'm hungry. And the Bible says he despised his birthright. And when he despised his birthright, he forfeited that right by sin. And when he lost a birthright, the blessing goes with him. And he lost it. And that's the whole concept. That's the whole concept. That model is all through the Bible. Somebody says, why did God intervene in a cultural situation within the structure of the nation of Israel that the cultural said, you, the firstborn, the elder, gets it all, and the secondborn uh, has to be serving to him? Why did God take the secondborn and make him number one, and the number one, and make him beyond that, and make the other one serve the, or the younger, or the elder serve the younger? Why is that? Because, I already told you, Esau represents the unsaved man. That will be your first birth. Esau represents the saved man. That will be your second birth. And God's blessings will never go to anybody that is the first birth. It wasn't, it wasn't Cain. It was Abel. It wasn't Saul. It was David. It wasn't Ishmael. It was Isaac. It will not be Esau, it will be Jacob. It wasn't John the Baptist, it was Christ. 
Because it wasn't your first birth that got you into heaven. It was your second birth. So God fixes that great principle by never letting the firstborn ever get to the point where they get the blessing. The second one always gets it because ye must be born again. See how that thing works? Now that's why I love my Bible. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. Pine tree. Oh, we won't go into that one again. <laughs> now, the reason why the Bible says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, ought to be clear now. He's not talking about an individual. He's talking about two nations. Let me talk to you about the nation of Israel for just a moment and then the nation of Edom or the Edomites. Turn, if you would, to the book of Obadiah in your Bible. And this is one we want to look at. Now, I know that strikes terror into many of you because Obadiah, I always get people, I say, turn to Obadiah chapter 6. And there's only one chapter in Obadiah. <laughs> For those of you that have our wide margin Bibles, it's on page 149. Excuse me, 1149. For those of you that don't, it's between uh, Amos, Obadiah, and Jonah. So just flip them pages and that sucker will fall in there sooner or later. Now, in Genesis chapter 36, verse 1, here's what it says. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, 11 times in the book of Genesis, you find the phrase where it says, these are the generations of. And sometimes it's an individual, sometimes it's an event. But 11 times it says, these be the generations of. And the whole book of, of Genesis is built around those 11 places. Because each one of those generations gives you another key to the individuals in the Bible. And uh, it's very important. But when you got here, you've got, you've got the story of Esau and Edom. And in Genesis chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 36, verse 1, here's what it says. These are the generations of Esau, here it comes, who is Edom. See that thing? That verse gave you the second part of your puzzle that told you that these are the generations of Esau, but Esau is Edom. Edom's a nation. And that's why God told you that two nations were in their womb back there. And that's why when Romans chapter 9 is talking about Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, he's talking about two nations, and I'm about to show you the reason why. Look at the book of Obadiah. Now, the book of Obadiah is a unique book, and you need to put this header in your Bible about the book of Obadiah. The book of Obadiah is the only book in your Bible. It is the only book in your Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, that is written against a nation of people. It's the only book in the Bible. It only runs one chapter, but it's a very powerful chapter. And Obadiah is the only book in your Bible, it is the only book in your Bible that is written against a nation of people. And you want to know that. All right, look at Obadiah here. Did you got it? Now watch how this thing developed. We're not going to read the whole thing, but I got some things here that I want you to see. Then I'm going to come back and I'm going to give you another header of why the old book of Obadiah was written. And you want to get this down because it'll put a context to the book of Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. See that thing? All right, opening statement. We know what this book's about. It's concerning Edom. Behold, verse 2, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. Then God despises them. Verse 4, 
Though thou exact thyself as the eagle, and thou hast set thy nest among the stars, hence I will bring thee down, saith the Lord. Now I can't, I don't have time this morning to do this. Maybe this is way beyond most of you, but from a guy like me that's been in the book for a few years, when I look at verse 4, it just screams. It just, everything in there, you take the word exalt, you take the word eagle, you take the word nest, you take the word stars, uh, it all strikes at some place in the Bible to Satan. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, see? You can go back in there and you can go back in the book of Isaiah and the book of Ezekiel and you can find the devil being likened to a great tree that the birds of the air, the demonic forces, made nests in their burrows. See, to somebody who, when you, and you'll get there in time, when you, when, you, when you get saturated with that thing and those things just pop out at you, that's what you really call, you know, uh, getting exact with the Word of God. You know what the Bible's like? We're going to do this some night. And boy, the last couple of nights have really been a good night to do it. As most of you know, you know, I, for years and years and years, have been big in astronomy, and especially astrophotography. I've taken some pictures of some great stuff. And, um, and I really enjoy it. I've done it all my life. And uh, I have it set up where that I have a, a camera that is a, it is an ultra-sensitive camera. It's like a movie camera. And it is so, especially for astrophotography, it's not one to take home films with. And it goes right in your telescope. And what it'll do is it'll, it'll take any telescope and make it 10 times bigger than it really is. In other words, this camera has the ability to stack like 378 images in a split second. And it just keeps feeding them in that live stream. And you get, if you take a 10-inch telescope, looking at it through the eyepiece, and you put the camera in, you've got a 40-inch telescope. I mean, you can look, I mean, you can look incredibly. You know, stars are, stars are graded by brightness by what we call magnitude. And if you go out on a night like last night, because that high-pressure system is right over Kansas City, and it's keeping the humidity out, and it's real cool, and the skies are clear, if you would be in the city, you could probably see, if you, if you get your eyes get adjusted to the dark a little bit, uh, you could probably see fifth magnitude. You get out in the country, where it's, Completely black stars, you might, you probably could maybe say six. If you had real good eyesight, you could probably see seven. If you wanted to see, and then they go from there, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all the way up to whenever, uh, a, a, 20, a 25th magnitude star, now that's really faint. A 25th magnitude star, if you wanted to see a 25 magnitude star, you'd have to go to California and get on the 200-inch Mount Palomar Telescope. The 200-inch Mount Palomar telescope can see 25 magnitude stars visually. I got a 12-inch telescope. That means the lens is 12 inches wide. When I put that camera in, I can see from Raytown, Missouri, in my front yard, 18th magnitude stars. That's how powerful it sucks the light in. I mean, it's, I mean you don't want to stand next to it. I mean, it'll, it'll pop popcorn if there's so many photons flying through that thing. But I, I want to I do that. So what I want to do some night is, is have a bunch of you over and, and, and set that thing up. And one of the things I want to do and illustrate is this. We talk about the Bible and talk about, you know, the things that I'm teaching you right now in the Bible basic class. And then I'm trying to show you how to put them all together. I'm trying to show you how to look for things. And I just gave you that verse right there about the, the nest and the result. And I showed you how those things, to me, they kick off warning flags of the context. You will get there in time. You know what the Bible's like? The Bible's like, 
if you would come over to my house tonight and we'd set up a telescope in the front driveway and the moon would be out. And you'd say to me, I really want to look at the moon. And, you know, you look at the moon, you know, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's beautiful and it's, it's right there and it hangs up in the sky and it's shiny and it's silvery and it's really beautiful. But if you put a telescope to it and you put, a, you put, a, you put an eyepiece in it that maybe magnifies oh, 75 times, brings us 75 times closer, you'll actually begin to see that it's not as beautiful and as, as perfect as you think it is. You start to see mountains, huge craters. Some of them craters are 160, 250 miles across. And then you take another eyepiece and put it in and bring it down about 200 times, and man, you're looking down inside some of those craters. I can set the telescope up that you can actually see craters on the moon that are 1,000 yards in diameter. But you know what you see when you see that? You see a junkyard. What looked so, what looked so one way when I just looked at it, the more magnification I put to it, the more I saw detail that I could not see. And now I'm not, I, I can actually now look at, the, look at the mountains and watch the shadows move on the surface through time. I'm, I'm getting that much detail. And you know what gave me that detail? I kept changing the magnification and learning how to focus it. Every time you take an eyepiece out and put another one in, you've got to refocus it. And that's just the way your Bible is. Right now, you're looking at the Bible through about a 100-power eyepiece. In time, my goal is to get you to look at that thing through a 1,000-power eyepiece. And through you stages of, of putting in different eyepieces and looking and seeing more detail, what you do is you get closer, you see more, you understand more. And just like you do that with a telescope with a moon with eyepieces, you do that with your Bible. My job is to keep changing out your eyepieces. My job is not to have you going around looking at everything in the Bible through 50x. I want to get you to 500. I want to get you to a place where you can see things like that. That is incredible detail, but it only comes by learning how to use the telescope, the Bible, and learning how not just to change the eyepieces. That's easy. Focus. And I want to tell you something. The more power you put in, the more critical your focus becomes. And I'm telling you, the more you get into that book and the closer you get to it, the more critical your focus becomes. And that's how it works. It's just that simple. He says, Though thou exalt thyself as an eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, hence I will bring thee down, saith the Lord. That sounds like Isaiah chapter 28, Ezekiel 14. Or Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. Verse 6. Here it comes. Look at verse 1. The visions of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord concerning Edom. Look at verse 6. How are the things of Esau? See that thing? He changed them interchangeably. Look at verse 8 again. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of Mount Esau? See, he's using them interchangeably. Look at verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return to thine own head. All right, look at verse 17. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness to the house of Jacob. There is the Jews, once was called Israel, now it's called Jacob. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. See? 
And he said down there, there shall not be anything remaining of the house of Esau for the Lord hath spoken. We're not talking about Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. We're talking about nothing concerning the church. We're certainly not talking about individuals. Now we know we're talking about two nations. And of course, if you know anything about the uh, Edomites at all, you know that the prophecy said that they would, they would be the servants. And the Edomites come from Esau. They always gave the nation of Israel problems. In fact, in that verse, he, she says, Why am I having trouble? Why am I having struggle in my womb? Why are these two boys mixing it up when they're not even born yet? And the Lord says, you know why? Because they're two nations. And I'm going to make a prophecy. The elder who should rule it all is going to take second seat, and the second born who should be second seat is going to be the ruler, and the other guy isn't going to like it. And they're going to have conflict all down through history, not only from their womb, but in their womb. And you'll find that those two boys never got along. You'll find that all through the Old Testament, it, they, 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 they hated each other. Esau always blamed Jacob and despised Jacob because he lost the birthright when he gave it up by his own choice. See? And as you go down through the history, our charts yesterday, through the development, the formulation, and the calling out of the nation of Israel, we came right down through it yesterday. We came Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right down the line. Jacob, right on down the line. We had everything laid out yesterday to show you, and we even talked about Esau. Esau gave up his birthright. He despised it. He lost it in Genesis chapter 20, the blessing, 27. And to this day, to this day, when you look around the world, you get on CNN, Fox News, whatever you want to hear, and you start reading in your paper about the Middle East. What you have in the Middle East today is the continuation of that prophecy. And the Pakistan, the Iranians, the Iraqis, every Middle East nation over there that has got themselves situated around the nation of Israel are all the descendants of the Edomites and the Ishmaelites that through Abraham, those two boys were the with a thorn in Israel's flesh. And today, the reason why they don't get it wrong is because they are still upset about the fact that the Jew is God's elect, and they're not. They're mad because the Jew has Jerusalem. And of course, for what, 18, 1900 years, Jerusalem was in Esau's hands and Ishmael's hands. And God just let that thing go because God knows in His plan, His timing, He'll turn that thing around. And in 1948, He did, and they've got it now, and they ain't getting it back, and that's why they don't like it. Now, let me take you back in your Bible history and show, me, show you how this thing works. As time went on after Ishmael, or, uh, Edom, or Esau and Jacob, they began to grow. And they become two peoples. And you're told that back there in Genesis. These two people, two nations, these people. Never an individual. We find that when they get into First and Second Samuel and they establish the kingdom, that the prophecy holds true. And the Edomites become subservient to the nation of Israel. They do their service work. They're under, their, they're under their care. They're under their, their, their sovereignty. And they have to do what they tell them to do. 
But we learned yesterday that not only do we have a, a, uh, a rise to power of the nation of Israel, but then we have a downward slant where they go into the demise and they finally go into apostasy and God finally has enough of them. Here's what happens. And for this, this is the reason God wrote the book of Obadiah. You need to know that. This is the reason God wrote the book of Obadiah. The book of Obadiah is written during the time of the captivity around that period of time. And this is why he wrote the book about Esau and Edom. And he, he wrote one book against these people. While the nation of Israel was at their high point, Esau and the Edomites, they basically had to do whatever Israel said. But you know as well as I do from our study yesterday and from our other studies what happened. Israel began to go into apostasy. Israel began to forsake God. And like your life and my life, when we start to forsake God and the things of God and bring in other things in our world, what happens? We get weak. And Israel got weak. They got weak spiritually. They may have been a nation of four or five million people, but that wasn't where our strength is. It's not by my might or my power, but my spirit, saith the Lord. Their national strength was not in their numbers. Their national strength was in their spiritual relationship with God. And just like you and me, when we cease to have that spiritual relationship with God, we get weak. We get weak. And they got weak. And as time went on, and we come down that downhill chart, as time went on, they got weaker and weaker and weaker. And you know what? The Edomites, through Esau, a nation, they saw their chance to take revenge on Jacob, the nation of Israel. So what did they do? When they're really at their weakest point, they lead a revolt. You'll find that revolt, if you want to mark it in your Bible, you'll find that revolt in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 20, and 2 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 8. By the time Israel gets to the place where they're so weakened, and Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon is ready to come down and take them into captivity. Ah, the Edomites from Esau, a nation, not an individual, join league with Nebuchadnezzar to help destroy the nation of Israel. And for that, they violated the great verse back there in Genesis that carries all the way through the Bible in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, where God simply said, I will bless those that bless thee, and I will curse those that curse thee. And they incurred the wrath and the curse of God for the next 4,000 years on the Edomites, and that's why he wrote the book of Obadiah. That's why he wrote the book of Obadiah. The Obadiah, a book of Obadiah, is against the Edomites because that they turned back on the nation of Israel and tried to rejoice and try to destroy them. And God says, that ain't going to happen. Now, that's historically. Now, I've got to tell you this. You know, every scripture, every book of the Bible has a historical application, has an inspirational application, has a doctrinal application. I told you this last Thursday night when somebody asked a question out of one of the minor prophets. And I told you that every minor prophet, every book of the minor prophets, doctrinally, will be a picture of the second coming of Christ. The same Esau and the Edomites who went against Nebuchadnezzar in 606 B.C. or went with him against the nation of Israel, who was one of the types of the Antichrist, those same Edomites today, which make the nations that line around the nation of Israel that hate them today, will also in the future, near future, line up with the Antichrist against the nation of Israel. And that's what you have in Obadiah. You have it historically, you have it doctrinally, inspirationally, it's a picture of what happened to you and me. You and I start losing our spiritual walk with God. We get weak, and you know what? The Edomites are going to come in and snap you up. 
They're going to snap you up. They're going to snap you up. So you see in Romans chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, where it says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. We are not talking about individuals. We're not talking about, uh, we're talking about nations. We're clearly, clearly clearing up the, the, the controversy of Israel here uh, that, that has anything to do with God choosing one person and not choosing another, and God electing one and not electing another, taking one to heaven, the other one to hell. It ain't even in there. It isn't even remotely in there. You got to really work at getting this one wrong. Because I'm telling you, it is so clear in the Bible that the word election and elect is never used in that context. The purpose of election, by Bible's definition now, and you want to get this down, the perfect of a purpose of election is simply this. The purpose of election and purpose of the word elect is God calling out a nation, one chosen or set apart and sanctified from the rest of the nations. It's never an individual. God's purpose, what we studied through our Bible basics class, God's purpose is revealed through the nation of Israel. And of course, it's, it's, the, it's the bottom line is the Old Testament uh, is connected with the component of Israel, and the New Testament is connected to the church. And that's what you're dealing with. That's exactly what you're dealing with. Now look at verse 11, 12, and 13 here. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil. Now here it comes. That the purpose of God according to election. Now you need to mark that part of that verse in your Bible. Because that's exactly what we've been coming through over there in our Thursday night Bible studies and also on Sunday morning, but specifically in our Bible basic class. We have now seen that God's calling Israel as an elect is part of God's purpose. That's what we've done through this whole thing of laying out the Bible in its most simple context of understanding, stepping back, looking at that whole Bible, 66 books, 1,189 chapters, 31,176 verses, backing up and looking at that Bible and saying, what is this thing? What is the plan? What is the purpose? Well, now we know. The purpose is that God wanted to call out a nation. That nation is Israel, and that nation is elect. And God set them apart, separated them from every other nation on this planet. The Edomites, Esau, didn't like it. And that's why he's saying, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Not talking about individuals, but talking about nations. Now, 11, 12, and 13, and we're going to get into this next week. 11 and 12 really sets up for next, the next section, which is probably the greatest single fundamental truth about God in all heaven and earth. It's no coincidence, I don't think, that we're into this right while many of you, some 100 of you, are in this Bible basics thing. Because you're beginning to see the parallels work very, 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 very carefully. And the bottom line is this. This is setting us up for probably the greatest single thing that you'll ever learn about God. And that is simply this. And we're going to get into it next week in big time fashion. But the thing that we're going to look at, and I think this thing sets up by looking in this and looking at Esau and Jacob, a little bit later on down through the verses, we're going to see Pharaoh. And we're going to see some other things there. Out of this comes the greatest single truth about God that you'll ever learn. And that is simply this. God, God is going to get honor and glory out of everything on planet Earth. I don't care if it's the devil. 
I don't care if it's AIDS. I don't care if it's whatever it is. I don't care what sin you can imagine and you can tell me about. It's not just the good things. that. And this is our problem. Because when we think that God gets the honor and glory out of the good things in our life and doesn't get the honor and glory out of the bad things in our lives, we get a, we get a kind of a skewed view of God. Let me tell you something. You ought to always do right in your life. And the first primary purpose for God is for God for you to do right and God get the honor and glory out of your life. But don't you ever doubt for a second that that Bible says, and we're going to get into it next week, that that Bible says that God has, God has vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. Don't you ever think for a minute because Esau went against the nation of Israel, lined up with Babylon, and in time was going to line up with the Antichrist. And who is going to, every purpose is going to one goal, and that is to destroy the nation of Israel. We look at that and we say, oh, what a terrible thing. Oh, boy, wish it wasn't that way. God says, doesn't matter which way it is. I'm God. And I'm fundamentally going to get honor and glory out of everything in this life. And that Bible says God has vessels of honor and God has vessels of dishonor. But either way, He will at the end of the day get the honor and glory out of it. That is the single greatest truth about God you'll never learn. But I'm telling you, it doesn't matter. You get to choose. You either give it to Him like Jacob did or He'll take it from you like He did with Esau. You either give it to Him and say, God, use me, or you'll say, up yours, God. I'm doing what I want to do. And God will say, well, go ahead and watch me get the honor and glory out of that. He will. He will. It may be at a funeral. I preached funerals before where somebody got killed in a car wreck. And they were a child of God. And, I, they, and, and that child of God was, was once on fire for God. Once loved God. Loved the Bible. But then got weakened. And the Edomites came in. And where once their, their body and their attitude and their testimony was used for the honor and glory of God, now they're using it for the honor and glory of the devil. And then now they're drinking, they're partying, they're smoking, they're doing all the things that the world does, and yet they're a child of God. And then God, through the course of time, said, that's enough. And then I get a phone call. Would you preach my son's funeral? He really loved you. My answer to them was this. And this has happened several times in my life and my ministry. My answer to them was this. Hey, look, I love you, and I know you're going through a great peril right now. Why don't you just do this? Why, if you can just pay another $100 or another $200, the funeral home has a wannabe preacher. That his whole world is, he'll get $200 to come in and preach your funeral, and he'll tell in that funeral everything you want him to say. He'll tell you and the world out there how good they were, how wonderful they are, how they're with God, how they're at rest, how their whole life was just one great thing. Because I don't, not that I don't want to preach it, but you know what? Just like the doctor took a hypocritical that, he has, to, that he, has to, he has to do certain things, I as a pastor has to do certain things. And I just cannot, in good conscience before God, get up there and say a bunch of things that aren't true that make everybody feel good. I love you to death, and I don't want to add any more pain to your pain. But the bottom line is this. Your child knew better. Your child should have been with God. And I'll tell you the truth. If they, he was killed on a Sunday night. If he would have been in church that Sunday night. We wouldn't be having this conversation. 
And they said to me, we want you to tell the truth. Brother, and I did. I did. I did. By the grace of God to the glory of God. We had about nine young men saved that funeral. Because the truth had to be told. And the bottom line, God looks down at that kid in the casket who probably had great potential. Who was somebody that I always thought, boy, he had everything going for them, but he got hooked up with the Edomites. And they destroyed him. And he took these hands that God gave him and he chugged down beer. He took these fingers that God gave him and then he smoked marijuana. He took this body that God gave him to preach the gospel and carry the message. And he abused it. He fornicated with it. And he did everything in the world. And God said, you know what? I've had it. But God said, I'll get the honor and glory out of it in your life or your death. But I'm getting the honor and glory. It could have went the way that everybody in that funeral sat there and looked at that casket and said, you know what? He was a great guy. He won me to Christ. He really helped me put my marriage back together. He really did this. He really did that. Boy, God be the glory. But no, they sat there and they said, wow, he was a child of God. He knew better. He should have done what's right. And God came down and judged him for it. To God be the glory. God's going to get it either way. Either way. And the greatest single fundamental truth about God that you better learn, that he's going to get the honor and glory out of everything, and you will either be a vessel of honor or a vessel of dishonor, but he's going to get it. Esau have I loved, or Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Not two individuals, nothing to do with the church, two nations. Concerning Israel's downfall, Romans chapter 9, prophetic section of the book of Romans. Now let me just say this to you. I know that yesterday, and I felt bad for you, I really did. But the end of our two and a half hour session yesterday, most of you looked like your brains had turned into sump pumps. <laughs> and I know that there was a lot yesterday. But let me, let me say something to you. I don't always say everything, what I'm, what I'm trying to do when I do it, because sometimes I just like to see what people do without any ulterior motive involved in it. Sometimes I just like to see if people will do uh, what they have to do just because it's the right thing to do. Now, I know that you're all worried about all the information you got yesterday, and I know that. Let me just say this to you. All you got to do, and you want to know how you study for this? And I'm just doing this now because I won't catch you all together again. Some of you may not be here Thursday night, but just about all of you here this morning. You know how you study for this? Don't get hung up on it. You know how you study for this? Here's how you do it. You write out three charts. And you put those charts with information on it that, that I gave you. Just the basic people and events. You don't have to get into all the superfluous stuff that I put in there. Just write, right now, next week, write out your three charts. Then, then throw your notes away. Burn them. Sell them. Put them on eBay. Throw your notes away. Forget the notes. Study those three graphs. Forget the notes. Get them out of your world. Make your graph one, two, and three, just like I gave you. Put the information on it that you need, and then throw them notes away. Study your graph. And when you come back next time, you just do your graph. Don't get caught up in all the details of this thing. 
Don't lose focus of what your goal is. Your goal is to learn those three graphs that put your Bible together on the foundational structure that we built the first month. Now, I'll tell you why this is important. I wasn't going to say this today, but it needs to be said because it's obvious to me now that you're taking this real serious. Here's what I want to do. I never said this when I started because, like I said, I just... I don't want people just to get in it for the wrong reason, so I just start to see who comes. Uh, some of you people who've been around here, and you're in Bible Institute, and you've been in Institute since the day one, and you've done really well, and you know what? Uh, I, I never made this class. I never said, you know, this is, I said this was all for the new people. Many of you, many of you who were the older people who were in Institute, you made it your priority to be there. Why? Some gathered more, some gathered less. You'll take every scrap I'll throw you, and I can appreciate that. But I never got up and said, this is what I'm going to do. Because if I did, everybody in the planet would have, would have signed up for this because they, they wanted to get some glory or recognition out of it. And I don't want that. I want it to be done by the ones who, without any prodding, without any, anything coercing you, any ulterior motive, you just simply came part of this class and you said, I want to do this because I want to learn the Bible. Okay, now, here comes my ulterior motive. I want you to learn this material. Last night, I stayed up till 1 o'clock in the morning. I'll tell you what, I was a little groggy this morning. I don't know why. You know, normally when I play ball on Saturday night, my back bothers me a little bit. On, 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 but today, it's just, oh, I couldn't even walk this morning. I was about ready to, I told somebody, I've taken every drug that's legal. I'm about ready to smoke me some marijuana and get this thing out of here. Now, you're laughing, but if I ever want to do that, I know right where to go to get some, I'll tell you. <laughs> And I, I know I, got, I stayed up to 1 o'clock last night. I just couldn't put them down. And then, you know, you get excited and you go to bed and you can't sleep. And I just kept going through it. I mean, I had 100 or some of them. And I just had to read every one of them. And everybody, I can't tell you, I was so impressed. And, and God said, you know what? You need to cut these people some slack now. You need to let them know where you're going with this. Because there's no, there's no question of this commitment. I'm going to have me 100 people that when we're done, you know your Bible. You have your basics down. And we're going to build from there. But here's what I'm going to do. Here's my goal. After the next test, I'm going to handpick about 15 key couples out of that deal who basically overall shows the best display. And then I'm going to take maybe two couples and put three couples, six people together. An older couple, two younger couples. And then what we're going to do is this. I haven't talked to Joe yet, but I know he'll do this. Uh, I went back to see him this morning. He was busy leading Father Abraham, so I didn't want to bother him. He's in the kids today. I'm going to have Joe devise these into lessons. And what we're going to do, right now we have Discipleship 1. We're going to start what we would basically call a Discipleship 2. In other words, once a person comes through Discipleship 1, now we're going to have another set of lessons that we're going to bring them through, that you're going to bring them through, that we'll take and develop our little teams and you'll work together and you'll get yourself all focused and all ready to go and get yourself to the place where you get this material down. There'll be an older couple in there that, that from Institute that basically knows how it works, but then there'll be you younger couples that will be in there that you'll be able to teach, be able to be part and help and everything will work together. That will take all the new people coming in and once they get through discipleship two, one. You know what? We have people that come in that need discipleship one, but at the end of discipleship one, we need to have the next level for them and up to this point we haven't done it we haven't been ready to do it we're ready right now 
And you people on Saturday morning, I told you, I didn't tell you this, but in the back of my mind, this is where I was always going with this. Now we're ready for that, see? And then we have people come in who don't need discipleship, one, but they need the next level of just putting the Bible together. You guys will be busy doing this till Jesus comes back with the way people come into our church and the needs that they have. See, I can't do it all by myself. I go, I go four or five days a week, start at five, done at nine, every night, plus do my own studies. I got people coming in. I got so many coming in. I can't do them every week. I got to do them every other week. I can't keep doing it all by myself. I, it takes me hours to prepare what I give you. And, I, and it takes away from something else I'm doing. I have now come to the point where I, am, I have legitimately reproducing myself in some of you out there. And now it's time for you to pick up the ball and carry it to that next level. That's where we're going. So I only tell you that for this. I only tell you that because I want you to add, I want to add diligence to your studies. Not that it hasn't been. I waited till after this test, and I got to say, yeah, I was impressed. It, you, you've all done an incredible job. And your attitude about the Word of God and the things of God is going to carry this church right up to the door until when Jesus comes. And it's something that doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, where you're at. You can get in and learn from the spot you are and then grow into it. It's the greatest single thing uh, that we've ever done that includes the body as far as getting you ready to teach people the Bible on whatever level you are. So I say all of that to tell you this. I add diligence to your study. I, I commend you for what you've done without any prodding, but now I prod you. And I, I commend you and I add diligence to your study. Do it even better than you already would have done it. Don't get burned out. Take those three charts, study them out, lay them out, write them out the way you want them, and then throw your notes away. And do not, if I find you looking at them again, I'm going to kick you out of church. Do not study them again. Study your chart. It's all you need. It's all you need. You are the best people on planet Earth. And God has brought us together in this time and these last days to do a work for Him. And we must be about our Father's business. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the